Good morning. Greet it to you in Jesus' name. Now, if you've ever thought about it as students, likely, but as a teacher, preacher, till you get to the last week of Bible school, you think it's sort of like, it seems like the height of arrogance to think that you have anything to say that these people still need to hear. Um, so I guess you just talk anyway. Sitting behind y'all for the most part, the evenings are the services over the weekend. I think some look like they're just fatigued with learning. Um, is that Festus or Felix? Felix told Paul that much learning makes you mad, so I hope you ain't on the edge of mad yet. Uh, You've got a little bit to go yet. It does almost seem like some of you tuned out, so I was asking God how I could talk to everybody. You know, the other thing is some of you, if you were a cup, I'd be, it'd be scary to bump into you because I'm sure it'd slosh out uh, everything you've heard. So how do I bless without, I'm not trying to take away anything, you already heard, so we'll see how this works. But I'd like to ask you a question. How can I make my life count? I'm not sure how often you ask yourself that question. For some reason, it's a question I've often asked myself in my youth on up through the age that I am now. One of the main ways I came up with on how to make my life count is to teach and actually I should first say to live and to teach so that others can learn from my mistakes and experience. I enjoy fishing, but a relatively small number of you would find my knowledge of fishing interesting and useful. And even if you did, even that small number would at best only get some hours of recreation, relaxation, and possibly excitement. Possibly even a smaller number of you would find my business expertise interesting and useful. You know, and even in that small number, it would be only of temporal value of this life. So how can I really bless anyone this morning? I think it comes down to spiritual life, doesn't it? If some of the spiritual, difficult spiritual lessons of my life can be listened to by willing minds, maybe you can learn something that won't only affect your life here, but eternally. And so that's what I want to do and what I share, what the the thing I share on next, I am very much still learning. And I'll explain a bit more later. How many of you know the song, If You're Happy and You Know It? Some of you got the Monday morning doldrums. Let's stand up. Uh, Those of you that know it, help me get started right, because when I'm in a, my voice ain't any too great. But let's do... Say amen, clap your hands, stump your feet, and then do all three. See if that wakes you up, okay? If you're happy and you know it. Okay, I'm going to start out with a story. How many of you have read the book Call of the Wild by Jack London? Quite a few, so I'm going to have to stay accurate here. Very good. Um, I, Jack London was not exactly a religious person, so I'm not sure. He might turn over in his grave if he knew what I was going to do with his story this morning. But I was asking God one time to help me understand the point and also to explain this point to others. And uh, this is the illustration I feel he gave me, so I'm going to use it. So those of you that read that know that the story is about a dog named Buck. Well cared for, even pampered, well loved, at peace at home in Southern California. 
You know, he had a pleasant and enjoyable life. It was limited, living on a big estate. And he did experience some vague dreams of a different and more dangerous life and time. Yet that's all it was, a vague dream. The reality of his life was peace, rest, security. One day, one of the gardeners, a man Buck had considered at least somewhat a friend, betrayed him, took him to the train station and sold him. The purchaser chained him in a, the train's baggage car and eventually placed him in a crate. You know, throughout this process, he was teased, ill-used, abused, deprived of food and water. As he went on through the shipping process, people, baggage handlers, would fight with him, and he would respond savagely, which made him do it more. Amused by his, amusing his persecutors. In this condition, lacking food, water, he almost went mad. Just so you don't fail, I'd like to think of that process. Initially, the process at home as the time of innocence. Uh, his shipping, his sale, and then shipping process I'm going to call the awakening process. So moving on in Buck's life, I'm shortening this a lot. In this maddened and raging condition, he was shipped to a man in Seattle, Washington, whose job was dog-breaking. And the, crate was, the shipping crate was brought into this dog-breaker's yard, and set off. And uh, there was some comments about how fierce, how ferocious this dog looks. And the dog breaker got out a hammer and started pulling the crate apart. And the other people were like, you're not going to let that thing out right now, are you? And he says, well, yeah. So they, they climbed up on boxes, wagons, anything to get out of the way because they thought this was going to be a bad deal. The dog breaker pulled apart the box enough that the raging buck could escape from his crate. And he stepped back, laid down his hammer, and picked up a small club, and that's all he had. And as that raging dog came out of that crate, he saw this man in front of him, and he just launched himself for the man's throat. Buck directed all his rage and energy into an attack on the man in front of him. He was determined to tear him to pieces. You know, as Buck rushed the man and leaped for his throat, something caught him and sent him spinning end over end. Disbelieving and even more enraged, he jumped to his feet and rushed back to the attack. Again, he launched himself at the man. Again, he was sent spinning end over end. Over and over, he tried to tear and to destroy, only to be met by punishing blows and defeat every time. He became so mad and he basically went insane. You now, at the peak of his pain and insanity, The man used his club to deliver the most painful and stunning blow of all. He hit him right on the nose, real hard. You know, as Buck, the dog, lay almost senseless and powerless, the man stooped down and handled him, something he would not have allowed from a stranger before. (coughs) Buck had met and learned about law. Buck didn't become fully reconciled to law, yet he knew that rebellion was useless. He spent years, if you read the story, he spent years under law, somewhat submissive, <coughs> excuse me, living in outward obedience, yet always studying, always considering, always desiring something more, something different, a workaround. 
Eventually, he reached the end of the road. Overworked, ill-treated, abused through the law, now in the hands of a foolish master, he was asked for obedience that he knew would lead to death. Just simply wore out and unwilling and knowing that death would come one way or another, he refused to comply to the command. He lay there just accepting the wrath and judgment of the law in the form of his foolish master. His master, enraged, began to beat him, at first to make him obey, but when that failed, he beat him to kill. Buck would have died that day in the hands of the law, but another man interfered. Switching a little bit. You know, the lesson of the law was and is necessary. It's part of the process of bringing understanding and growth. Yet the law also brings discouragement, resignation to never arriving, a giving up on victory, even a giving up on life. And finally, law by itself brings death. I mentioned these verses to one of my classes at least, but I'll read them to you. Romans 7, verse 9 through 11. For I was alive without the law once, a time of innocent. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life or to give life, I found to be death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. (coughs) I believe this morning that as many or more Christians have been destroyed spiritually by the discouragement of a law focus as have been destroyed by deliberate rebellion. Give you an example. Had a double first cousin, probably one of the more sensitive Christians I knew, who for years tried to live up to, and many, many people would look at her and say, how amazing, what an amazing Christian she was. You know, the day came when she left the church, left trying to live up to what she would have understood as law for 40-some years, and just, I guess you could say, threw in the towel. And it's because of this problem. Let me read Romans 7, verse 22 and 24 yet. It says this, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. If you've been there like I have, the next verse says it so well. Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? When you go through this cycle of desiring something better, of determining you will do better, of giving it all you've got only to fall flat on your face, (coughs) as you sprawl in the dirt to know that you just messed it all up again. That is the cry of the heart, oh wretched man that I am. Is there no way out of this? Is there no better way to do this? Where are you in your journey? In open conflict to the law. 
it'll knock you out. In uneasy compliance, there's no joy there. In dying resignation, it's just giving up. Or is there another option? Let's go back to Buck. As he lay there on the trail, unwilling at first, or just barely, unable to rise, being beaten to death, there's that other man came along and saved him from the law. This man saved him from death, nursed him back to health, gave him something he had never had before, a relationship. You know, initially this relationship was based on rescue from the brutality of the law and from death. But this relationship morphed and grew into a relationship of love and devotion. Buck grew to have such an admiration and adoration of his new master that he was willing to do anything the man asked of him. He became famous in a tough region for his complete devotion to his master. (coughs) I'll just give you two times. Once, his master, in trying to um, something to do with a raft, was in a river and was on the point of no recovery in a rapids. When Buck with uh, one of the partner's help, swam out with a rope. And they both nearly died that day, but due to Buck's devotion, they were alive the next day. That was one. Another time, his master, was just a nice day, and they were sort of idly sitting up on a high bluff overlooking the country. There's a sheer cliff on the one side there. And his master, sort of daydreaming about how devoted this dog was to him, Got a crazy idea. And he pointed out over the cliff and he told Buck, he said, jump. The next instant, the master was be, needed rescuing as well because Buck actually jumped. And as he grabbed Buck, he almost went along with him and they had to be pulled back by some other people. Jumping to certain death at the command of the master. Dear friends, this morning, have you met the man that saves? Romans 8, verse 2 through 4. For law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Voluntary surrender. I don't know what you think of when you think of surrender. And I've asked different groups different times what they think of surrender. An answer I often get is when General Lee, for example, surrendered to General Grant there in Virginia at the end of the Civil War. And that is surrender in one of its shape, but it's not the surrender I want to talk about necessarily. You know, for one general to surrender to another general means that he's met the end of the road. He's out of options, right? It means that an educated or a wise person says, I can't go anymore. This is stupid. I quit here. The only option I would have left is 
guerrilla warfare or something disgusting. I'm, I'm finished. So often, surrender has or can have the thought of duress, pressure, force. And I've heard different people speak on surrender. And they almost let the thought that God works us over or works on us till we just give up and give out. <coughs> and I don't like that thought completely. Surrender under duress, under pressure, is a start, but it is not necessarily the surrender that God wants. The surrender that God wants from me, from you this morning, is not so much a surrender of giving up as it is the surrender of giving in. Giving in. The surrender that God desires is not one of defeat, but a surrender, will, a desire for conformity with him. Yes, conforming in love does mean that I give up my plans, I give up my will, but it also means that I gain something much better, a loving relationship. After all, the path of surrender to Christ is the very path of life, the path of love, the path of peace, the path of rest, eternal. I'd like to use one other illustration here, that of marriage. Surely all of you have been to a wedding, right? Okay, good. I'd like to think of the bride a bit. She, to some degree, fills a more parallel role to what we do in our relationship with Christ. Have you ever thought of how sad and depressing it would be if you went to the wedding and the bride would have to be drugged or led in as a captive? Or maybe, maybe she comes on her own steam, so to speak. But you know that this marriage is occurring because of coercion, a feeling of resignation rather than one of joy and delight. That'd be horrible. That'd be horrible. You know, the attitude with which a bride builds a good marriage is that of willing gladness at the privilege to wholly give herself to another. She lays down her dreams, her plans, her life goals to fully share in and participate in the dreams, the plans, and the life goals of her husband. Yet, you know, if I'm going to be real to life in this illustration, I've seen many a well-meaning wife, marriage destruct, if you will, by changing that over the years. Maybe she went into her wedding day that way. But some years later, she ends up having some agenda, some program of her own, and it brings conflict to her marriage. It unfailingly does. Yet, unfortunately, this problem is not unique just to a wife. Many is the Christian who has tried, <coughs> who is trying and who will try to have some agenda or program of their own. Is there conflict in your relationship with Christ? Is there conflict in your Christian life? If there is, friends, I tell you, I can guarantee you this morning, there's something that self is trying to control that you haven't given up. How is it in your life? 
take a serious look at yourself. Are you defensive? When you're asked to obey to something you don't understand. When things are out of your control, how do you respond? When you're called onto the carpet, so to speak, do you justify yourself? Those all come out of a heart that's not surrendered. Is there conflict with God's children? If there is, again, I'd like to propose that in someone, somehow, self is trying to have a say. In the spiritual arena, conflict, I have almost always, and I would very nearly take that almost out and say always, in the spiritual arena, conflict always has some roots in agendas, in plans of my own in self. <coughs> Let me ask you, do you know what it is to have a knot of fear in your middle causing a sour taste in your mouth? Do you know what it is to be on the verge of panic? Something just has got to change or to be different. Do you know what it is to be on the edge of breaking, snapping? Something must give. Do you know what it is to pray about the same thing over and over, wondering why there's no answer? Do you know what it is to wonder, God, where are you? Do you know what it is? To question God. To wonder why he doesn't answer. Why he doesn't respond. Again. In my own experience. To some degree anyone. Or all of these come from failing to make the choice to surrender. When I'm not broken. When I haven't just completely given up Joe. To God's will. It blocks God from working. And then I wonder why he doesn't. So foolish of me. Surrender in love to love. So let me ask you another question. Do you have rights? You know, rights are so dear to Americans. And they need to be so foreign to the Christian. You know, you see little children playing. And they don't have to be very old at all. It seems like sometimes about the tenth word, if not before, that they learn is mine. Mine. And oh, how I wish I could unlearn mine, but I can't. But what I can do, I say it's not mine. Do you have a right to self? A right to a certain kind of music? A right to money? A right to a good job? A right to a good business? A right to use your time your way? A right to a good reputation? A right to make plans for yourself. A right to a healthy savings account. A right to a good retirement. A right to choose my friends. A right to health. A right to good church life. How many rights did Christ have while he hung on the cross? You know, if I'm going to fall down and surrender before Christ... I personally believe I can't have any more rights than what he did while he was on the cross. I know that's a hard doctrine for all of us.
Oh, it gives so hard to give up some things, doesn't it? I can still clearly, distinctly remember. I tried uh, courtship one time and it failed. Well, I don't know if I can say it failed. It didn't even get off the ground. And I was sort of building up to trying again. I thought I was. And I was actually at a Bible school program of all places when this thing sort of reached a climax of surrender. It wasn't broken. It wasn't smashed my plans at that point. But I was so scared it wouldn't work out. I was afraid it wasn't what God wanted from me. I was fighting this battle of choosing to surrender. You know, finally, I just left. Actually, they were singing the program. I went out back around that church and inside were mobs. Outside was nobody but me and God. And oh, how I struggled, but I still remember how great it was when I finally just told God, it's all yours. Just to tell God, I don't need anything but you. And I struggled to believe that that was true. You know, he's given me much more than just that. At the same time, just to surrender. It was so hard, but it brought so much peace to just know that Joe didn't have to fight anymore. Recently, gone through our church was working in a different situation i told some of you about this some of you know about it and one of us as church leaders was going to be asked to move to just basically pack up everything and uh, i'm a person that likes to plan ahead sometimes that gets me in trouble but i feel in the long run it's better than getting hit when you don't expect things so as i knew this potential was there for me needing to get rid of my business, get rid of, yeah, and move. I was trying to plan this all out, and it just didn't work. You know what I mean? You look at it this way, and you look at it that way, and you think, well, here's the plan that might work, and then you follow it through all the moves, and it just doesn't, it crashes. So you try another one, and finally, I was, been working on this thing for weeks. How could this work for me? I still remember exact spot on the road. It's funny how you can be driving 60, 70 miles an hour and still know exactly where it happened, where I told God. This doesn't work. But again, I'm sick of thinking about this. So it's your problem now. Choosing to surrender. And you know, there again, just still the thing I remember best is the peace Did it take care of the problem? Did it fix it? Did it change it? No, not at all, if you want to say on the surface. Nothing had been decided at that point. I didn't know a bit more than when I had surrendered. Yet at the same time, the outlook was completely different. Recently, my wife was reading a story while we travel. She does that a lot. And uh, it was about persecution in one country. And this dictator state was allowing a certain amount of people to leave every week. And a month in advance, they would get their ticket saying that they could leave the country where they were being, and this was Christians, a lot of them, that were being persecuted for worshiping God. They weren't allowed to get together like we do. And they were all excited, this family. I think it was a mom and our dad, mom, and four children. They had their tickets. They had their way out. They were going to a free country where they could worship God, where they could live life the way they wanted. 
And they were halfway through that month of waiting. They had two weeks left. They gathered in a secret service. And the speaker just challenged them. He said, in the service, he challenged those that were listening. He said, have you just wholly given it to God, even whether you leave or whether you stay? A couple days later, this family, living in extreme persecution, gave their tickets back to the government and said, we're going to stay. Somebody asked him, how in the world can you do this? There's nothing wrong with wanting to serve God freely, to live for him without fear, is there? But they said, as we surrendered to God, we discovered that he wants us right here. Have you surrendered all your rights? Have you yielded everything? You know, it's not how much or how little I, you have, but it's who owns what I have, little or much. So I want to challenge myself this morning to live for Christ. Not in anxiety of his displeasure, but in a desire to be wholly pleasing to him. He's done so much for me. I want to just pour out my life. I don't want to hold anything back. Not because I have a fear of rejection, but in a longing to be fully united with him. Not in a dread of separation from him, but in a passionate longing to be in his presence, yes, forever. Remember, In the spiritual arena, conflict almost always has its roots in agendas, in plans, in dreams of my own, in self. The surrender God desires of you this morning is not one of defeat, but a surrender of love and a desire for conformity with Him. The path of surrender is the very path to life, to love, to peace, to rest eternal. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 through 9. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the, of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which were given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. If you want to do something for me this morning, pray. Pray that I could serve God in power, in love, and in a sound mind. There's nothing better that you can do with your life. Let's stand for prayer. Dear Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son. Oh, Lord, I'm so unworthy. I really wasn't worth it. Oh, Lord, I want to love you. And I just ask the same for each one here. Lord, whatever their battle in this area of surrender, would you send your spirit to help them, to lead them, that they could yield all and follow you. And have the peace that can come from only knowing that you control everything we have that we are and that we can possibly ever be. Lord, we give ourselves to you. Guide and direct our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated.